Graham Norton here, welcoming you to this edition of the Graham Norton Book Club, a celebration of all things story. We have a bounty of books, an abundance of authors and a cornucopia of clubbers all lined up for you. And joining me in my horn of plenty is none other than celebrated novelist and screenwriter Sarah Collins. Hello, and I believe you are back on these shores? Back where I belong, at my desk writing. And I believe you've got a new gig. I've got a new gig, that's right. Because I am back at my desk writing, I have signed on to do an adaptation of a T.M. Logan novel. Have you ever read one of those? I don't think I have, no. They're sort of quite good um, kind of airport thrillers. And this one is all about a woman who is caught in a dilemma where essentially she's offered this favour. She can give one name, one person she wants to disappear and that person will be gone forever. No questions asked, no tracing it back to her. Um, What does she do and does she get caught? I was going to say, what's the dilemma? <laughs> <laughs> Who would your name be then, Graham? Go on. My lips are sealed. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, uh, let's get to it. Our book this time is Going Postal by the much-missed master of fantasy himself, Terry Pratchett. It's the story of one Moist von Lipvig and his adventures reviving the wholesome mail service in the face of shoddy new technology run by profit-obsessed business baddies. Here to talk about it are Jeff, who chose the book for us, Jared, Saima and Stuart. Hello to you all. Hello. Hi, Hello. Hi. Nice to see you. And Jeff, how are things? Because we haven't really checked in with your menagerie this series so far. Ah, the menagerie. Yeah, so sadly, we lost a guinea pig uh, a few weeks ago. So we're down to six guinea pigs. We've still got the two rabbits. We've got the two (laughs) hamsters. We've got a new cat. Uh, We've still got the three dogs. We've got the axolotl. And as far as I know, we've still got all of the fish. (laughs) And and Jeff, I think I'm not the only one who will be thinking this. What is an axolotl? Uh, An axolotl is sometimes known as a Mexican walking fish. That makes it very clear. There we go. We all knew that. Like a frog. There we go. A little bit like a newt. Okay. And uh, and Stuart, you've had more TV exposure since we last spoke. Yes, I have. I was on TV this week. Um, I, I don't know how to break the news to you, but I have been seeing another book club behind your back. Why, I yada. <laughs> it was just a one-off. It meant nothing. So, um, I, I, I hope you can... But yeah, I was on there talking about Val McDermott. It was filmed when I chaired Val at... Noir. Uh, well, listen, we'll be back with you all later to find out if you thought going postal was first class or if it was a case of return to sender. After, we've spoken to Terry Pratchett's assistant and biographer, Rob Wilkins. And after, Sarah has given us her three of the best. And Sarah, I believe you are also exploring the state of things. I am, and I'm doing so, Graham, because not even for you could I come up with a list of fantasy novels. <laughs> <laughs> My golden rule for reading is if there's a dragon on the cover, I'm out. (laughs) But I am really glad that the book club has forced me to read my very first Pratchett because I thought there was a lovely kind of old fashioned crusading sort of spirit to it. And so in that vein... I've gone off on my own crusade in search of authors who kind of get us thinking about the state of our communities and perhaps galvanising us into doing something to change them. All right. Well, I look forward to those insights. In the meantime, here's a woman who sounds like she'd be good in a crisis. Eleanor, the eldest daughter, whose advice was so effectual, possessed a strength of understanding and a coolness of judgment, which qualified her, the only 19, to be the counsellor of her mother and enabled her frequently to counteract 
to the advantage of them all, that eagerness of mind in Mrs. Dashwood, which must generally have led to imprudence. The star of Derry Girls and Bridgerton and audiobook High Priestess Nicola Coughlin with an extract from her forthcoming read, Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility. She tells us about her sparkling audiobook track record later on in Talking Books. So now it is time for Terry Pratchett's Going Postal. When we meet Moist von Lipvig, he is about to be hanged as a conman and a thief. In fact, he is hanged, but secretly saved at the last minute by Count Vetinari, the patrician dictator of Ankh-Morpork. Vetinari has a job for Moist, which, if he refuses, would see the death sentence completed. He will be the new postmaster, tasked with reviving the mail service, which has disintegrated in the face of the Clacks, the new system of visual telegraph towers run by the corrupt and ruthless Grand Trunk Company and its evil leader, Reacher Gilt. Moist discovers a crumbling post office, rammed with piles of undelivered letters, well-meaning but ineffectual junior postman Grote and his assistant Stanley. With the help of his parole officer, Mr. Pump, a giant pottery golem with fiery eyes, and Adora Bell Deerheart, whose father built the original clack system before it was stolen from him, Moist revives the mail service. But guilt is out to get him. Finally, Moist challenges the ruthless Grand Trunk Company to a race to get a message to Genoa, 2,000 miles away, before they do. Everything depends on him winning the day and revealing guilt's crimes. Going Postal came out in 2004 and is part of the 41-book Discworld series, the fantasy universe Terry Pratchett unveiled in 1983 with the first title, The Colour of Magic. It's a place that readers are extremely passionate about, with over 110 million books sold worldwide. Terry was prolific, usually bringing out two titles a year, both Discworld and other series, some with collaborators, including huge hits like Good Omens, which he wrote with Neil Gaiman. Very sadly, Terry was diagnosed with Alzheimer's in 2007 and died in March 2015. However, his longtime assistant and biographer, Rob Wilkins, was part of the process of creating many of the Discworld titles, including this one, and was by his side for a huge part of his career. In fact, it was Rob who drove the steamroller over the computer hard drives containing Terry's unfinished work, the author's own request before he died. Rob agreed to talk to us, and when we spoke, I started with where Going Postal came in the great scheme of things. It's the 33rd Discworld novel, so yeah, we're well on our way. But it's a new theme for Terry, it's a, a new character joins us, uh, Moist von Lipvig. And for one day, for 24 hours, Moist von Lipvig was actually Moist von Hedvig in the office. And I said, you can't possibly have a Moist von Hedvig, Hedvig being the owl in the Harry Potter series. And Terry argued, 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 and then came in the following day and said, OK, yeah, you've got your own way. From here on in, he's going to be Moist von Lipvig. Isn't it funny? Because I was reading a thing by the, you know, the Discworld fans, and they were saying that Lipwig was a reference to moustaches, which is what a con man would be wearing. <laughs> as, as with everything, as you know, Graham, they do tend to delve in maybe a little too deep. Um, <laughs> Ter Terry probably came up with the idea Lipwig 
as he was walking up from the house to the office that morning. So, uh, no, that's giving him a bit too much credit. As he opened the office door and walked towards me, Litvig would have entered into the frame. <laughs> and to be honest, between you and me, he is actually my favourite character in the whole of the Discworld series. And when you started working with Terry, did he have an overall plan or was just going, to, I'm going to write another book set in that world? I love seeing photographs of other authors' studios and offices when there's uh, walls and whiteboards with with post-it notes all over them and, and just dream maybe that we could have had one of those. But we never did. There was no plan. Terry wrote what he wanted to write and uh, his gift to himself for writing a good book was to write another one. So there's probably two or three novels on the go at any given time in, in, in Terry's writing career. Uh, Jeff Watson, who uh, chose the book, he's got a question about destroying all the computer hard drives. Is there any future for kind of any of these characters? No. <laughs> I'm really sorry, but no. Um, it, it really was Terry's dying wish that his scraps, as it were, the what he called the pit, which was a file on our on our machine where the the fragments of, of, of ideas went, that's basically what I crushed. Um, so th- there was a lot of words. One of the unfinished novels, Twilight Canyons, there was over 20,000 words of that. That will never see the light of day. But we, we have since found some short stories that Terry had written under the pseudonym Patrick Keans. And in fact, they have just been published. And that will be the final pressure. This is a stroke of the pen. Yes. Yeah, that's right. And did you have any qualms about publishing them, given what he felt about the rest of the stuff? They'd already been published. So he'd written those and they'd been published in his lifetime. So that's my get out of jail free card. So if they'd got to the point of being published, then Terry was obviously happy with them. But did I have any qualms? Yes, I did. But they were too good not to publish because they showed the embryos of the career that was to come. Any new piece of hardware that arrived in our office, the first thing we would do would lever the side off it to see what was going on underneath. And for me, looking at these short stories, that's us levering the top off Terry's career and having a look inside and seeing what made him tick. But given that he died, he was just 66 and had been ill before that, he was incredibly prolific. Did he just write all the time? Was he just a machine? It's the most fun that you can have with your clothes on would be Terry's <laughs> description of his of his writing. Uh, yes, he wrote all the time, all the time. And his advice to young writers would be write every day. It's your wedding day, write a thousand words. Granddad's funeral, write a thousand words. A journey up to London wouldn't be wasted. I'd be sitting in the back of the car. Terry would be in the front next to the driver. And we, we would be writing. Um, he would write on his own. On a, Can you remember the Palm Pilots? The, yes. little, the little sort of pre-iPhone devices. Yeah. He would have a Bluetooth keyboard connected to those and would be writing at 38,000 feet before laptops were light enough and portable enough with enough battery life to write across the Atlantic. He wrote all the time, Graham, all the time. And in terms of predicting things like for instance the end of this book where all the the banks come together it it has real shades of the financial crisis in 2008 is there a lot of that in Discworld where you're reading it thinking wow this is just like a thing that happened after he finished the book I don't know how it happened Graham I don't know how he did it but um, the book the next Moise von Lippwig book I should say Making Money it does foretell the banking crisis in, in, in as much detail as you need to, to work out what was going to happen. And I was asked recently about Terry's ability to see in the future. But in fact, I think what it was more than that was Terry's ability to read human beings and read the human condition and realise actually our ability to cock things up is absolute. And that's what he could see.
Jeff also wonders, do you have, uh, you must have thought about this, so do you have any theory on the enduring appeal, why these books are still so popular and, and there's so many of them? Sitting here now, it's eight and a half years since Terry passed away and the book still seems so relevant now. I've always got a Terry Pratchett on the go for pleasure, not, not for research or anything else. They still seem so relevant and Terry still seems so relevant. His book sales are, I will touch wood as I'm saying this, are increasing. And it seems incredible for an author who has been gone for this long that his career still seems to be shining so brightly. It, it, it is... I find it remarkable that people still find the message within Terry's book is still so clear. I'm so glad that they find that. And I'd tell anybody who wants to listen that if everybody in the world read a Terry Pratchett book, the world would be an infinitely better place. Jeff also has a point about uh, the morality in the books and Terry Pratchett's, you know, his moral indignation about things. And and Jeff is just wondering, is the funniest, maybe most subtle humour attached to the things that Terry was most angry about? Yes, Terry spent a lot of time being angry about, about a lot of things. And uh, I feel that he can get his message under the door by applying Terry Pratchett humour in a way other authors just wouldn't be able to if they were trying to address it head on. So, yes, Terry did have a very strict moral compass. And um, more than anything, he was angry at his DNA and what it had served up to him, um, unfortunately, with the Alzheimer's. He had so many more words to write. And, and the last few years we just spent writing furiously getting down everything that we could possibly get down to get the final books finished but even at the end there was so many more I rage against the gods for that not just for the loss of my friend but for the novels for the characters that we know where Terry's writing career was going that that graph was just was almost a vertical line yeah Uh, Rob, there's some questions we ask everybody on the podcast. Uh, The first one is uh, a book that sort of opened the world of reading to you. It's really easy for me to answer that question. Jack Higgins, his 1975 novel, The Eagle Has Landed. It was set in Norfolk, where I grew up, and it reached out to me. It felt that the author was telling the story for me. I recognised every location within that novel and it opens with the author actually walking through a graveyard addressing you. So we've actually broken down the fourth wall in the novel. And so as a seven or eight-year-old child, even that young, having the author talking to me I really loved that. So, yeah, easy one for me. The Eagle has landed, Jack Higgins. Okay, that number one. Uh, the next book we're after is a book that you feel more people should be aware of. It's a tiny little book by a vaudevillian actor called Chick Sale called The Specialist. And it, it started off as a sketch on stage. And then it's no more really than a short story, but it's a beautiful little book. And it's probably on its 500th impression now. It's about a privy builder, an outhouse builder. And Terry described it as having the pure mathematics of, of how a, a short story should be written. It's a beautiful little book, and I recommend it to everybody. All right. And then the final book is uh, the book that you admire so much, you, you wish you had written it. The Colour of Magic by Terry Pratchett, because if I'd written that, <laughs> Graham would be having an entirely different conversation now. <laughs> um, and actually, how much of you is in the books, given that you were there for so much of that time and, you know, you're talking and, yes, he's he's dictating the work, but were you chipping things in or you were silent as the tomb? 
Oh, it, that's a tough one because obviously it's it's everything in the books is Terry's, but it does delight me when I read back and I think, yeah, I can remember having that conversation. With Going Postal, I remember setting up the clack system across the office floor because we were trying to work out what would happen when a message crossed coming in the other direction. So it's things like that that I see of myself in the books. He did name a few characters after me. Rob Anybody, the Knack McFeagle in the Tiffany Aching series, is named after me, even though um, I don't do much fighting or drinking or whatever but uh, that's quite nice I, I suppose just by dint of being around him some of the stuff must have leached out the other way by osmosis but um, I'm very careful using the word genius because he would have slapped me down in the office for saying it but the genius of Terry Pratchett didn't need me or anybody else to do what he did Terry Pratchett's assistant and friend, Rob Wilkins. And if you'd like to find out more, his biography is called Terry Pratchett, A Life with Footnotes. Plus, as Rob said, the new book of short stories, A Stroke of the Pen, has just come out. And the audiobook for that as a cast of many famous voices, including Derek Jacobi and Claire Foy. So, Sarah, it's possible that Terry Pratchett imagined his own world because he was fairly fed up with this one. Uh, Tell us about some states of other nations. Listen, I've been feeling fairly fed up with this one as well. And so have the authors on my list this week. So I'm going to start with The Bee Sting by Paul Murray. Uh, One of my faves of this year. It's a brilliantly kaleidoscopic story about an Irish family who kind of falls apart when they lose all their money after the dad's car dealership goes under. But the reason I'd call it a kind of state of the nation novel is because They're the lens through which we see Murray's rather sharply drawn portrait of a particular slice of Ireland. And in this case, it's a small town just outside Dublin, where the inhabitants are kind of tangled up in a net of their own problems. But they're also facing the same kind of pressing global emergencies we all face. And one of the brilliant things about this novel is that climate change is knocking on the door of it throughout. And the thing that really stuck with me about the book is the way that it kind of rings the alarm on that topic um, in a manner that's beautifully specific and yet brilliantly universal. It's a genius book. And am I right that this title has been involved in the the whole Booker Prize this year? So it is on the Booker shortlist. And as we're speaking, we have no idea whether it's going to win, but it is the odds on favourite in many circles. You heard it here first. Uh, Your second choice, please. Well, pick number two is A House for Alice by Diana Evans. Now, this one is a follow-up. It's a sequel um, to her novel Ordinary People, which was shortlisted for the Women's Prize, I believe, in 2019. So I am going to sneak in two for the price of one here by recommending them both. Okay. Now, they both follow the same couple, Melissa and Michael, who were married in Ordinary People and have now separated. And the book is all about how they navigate that kind of personal domestic tragedy in the shadow of the national cataclysms of Grenfell and the aftermath of Brexit and the hostile environment, which might all sound very political with a capital P, but there are (laughs) zero soapboxes here. The political stuff simply just becomes part of the pain and the joy of life, the way it is for all of us. And it's part of the reason, I think, why you're so invested In her characters, you really get a sense of real people making their way in modern day London. But you also wonderfully, I think, get this very vivid, urgent and loving picture of London itself. Plus, also, these are people uh, living real lives. 
So you get the love, you get the parties, you get the music. There's always lots of music in Evans's novels. Great way to kind of fish out your soundtrack for the season. But there's this lovely lyrical quality to your writing as well that just zips you along, even if, you know, we are sort of um, talking about living in the shadow of all of that stress and doom and gloom. All right. Strong sell. Uh, Number three, please. Number three. I've saved the best for last. Um, I mean, this one uh, this year won the Woman's Prize and the Pulitzer. It was an Oprah book club pick and it dominated the charts and the conversation. It's Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver. And this is the retelling of David Copperfield. It is. It's a modern day retelling of David Copperfield, but it's been transported to rural Virginia. And Kingsolver herself is from Virginia and she has said that her mission with this book is to kind of write against the derogatory stereotypes of, you know, the sort of toothless rural country people in that part of America and present the full humanity of the place. And I think she's really done that beautifully. So she's taking aim here at the opioid epidemic through the story of a young boy, the demon of the title. He ends up in foster care because of his mother's addiction. And then through his story, she gives us an unfair flinching panorama of the plight of prescription drug abuse. The way, as Kingsolver puts it, the pharmaceutical companies deliberately targeted these communities for their poison pills. And it's worthwhile reading, it's angry reading, and it never really sinks into depression because there is this kind of wonderful black humour throughout. The title character is this lively, spirited, intelligent boy. And also, there's this really lovely kind of exercise you can do of finding all the Dickens Easter eggs, which put a smile on my face as I was reading. And I love that you never know what she's going to write next. Her books are so varied. Exactly. She's a bit like Margaret Atwood that way, I think, and two of my all-time favourite writers. All right, look, thank you very much, Sarah. And if you've been too busy trying to imagine a world where proving a human doesn't involve identifying motorbikes in squares, to note down the books we mention... Don't worry, just visit the Amazon or Audible website, search for the Graham Norton Book Club and you'll find our webpage and all of the books we talk about will be right there. Right, time for Going Postal. Joining us from London, Orkney, Bradford and Newcastle, but willing to journey into Discworld, are the mastermind behind the Bradford Literary Festival, Asayama Aslam, MBE. Hello to you. Hello. Former librarian and now toy shop part-timer, Stuart Bain. Hi. Hello. Former book blogger and bookseller and now NHS administrator, Jared Leachman. Good day, Jared. Hi. Hi. And part-time librarian and full-time phone salesman, Jeff Watson, who chose Going Postal for us. So, Jeff, I suppose the most basic question is, what is Discworld, for people who don't know? So, Discworld is a large, flat world balanced on originally five giant elephants, now four, which is on the back of a giant turtle, Atuan, who is actually swimming through the galaxy. Of course. Obviously. So I I sense you are a big Terry Pratchett fan. So can you give us, you know, why this book and what is it about the Discworld that you enjoy so much? What I enjoy so much about the Discworld is it's got so many facets that Terry Pratchett explored over so many different books. Why I like this particular book was that this was actually written out 
what you could term the height of his powers. He was running on uh, on all cylinders on this one. Every word was absolutely perfect. And every time I actually read this book, which I have done, I'd say probably around about 12 or 14 times, wow. I come across a different bit. For instance, on my last reading of it, I realised there was actually a reference to Lord of the Rings very near the end. And I'd actually never spotted that before. So, yeah, I love the books. I love the humanity of them. So, Jeff is obviously a Terry Pratchett fan. Is anyone in the club coming to Terry Pratchett for the first time? Stuart? Yes. Yeah. This is, you know, book 30-something. So, in at the deep end, what did you think? Terry Pratchett's one of these authors that, from working in the library, I knew how successful he was and how prolific he was. And that, I'm, I'm always slightly resistant to authors who are a really prolific and everybody gives them loads of praise it just makes me go i don't want to read them so i've sort of probably actively avoided reading teddy pratchett up until now but i want to say thank you to jeff for finally making me do it because i absolutely loved it and i was surprised how quickly i was pulled into the story i thought it was great he's so skilled at creating the world that you're drawn into and this he's Pratchett's so good at characterisation. I I got a real surprise. So will you be reading the other 40 in the series? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I would go that far, but I have downloaded the next day uh, my Von Litvig book. Making money. Yeah, that's coming up next for me. All right. Uh, let's check in with uh, Saima. Have you read Terry Pratchett before? I'm a massive Pratchett fan. Um, so I was introduced to Pratchett when I was uh, 17 and first one that I read was actually Equal Rights and it has remained one of my absolute favourite books. And I'd kind of forgotten going postal, actually. So it was like lovely to have that reintroduction. I love Terry Pratchett. I'm a massive fan. Absolute pleasure to do this one. And uh, finally, Gerard, uh, a Pratchett fan or have you read him before? Yeah, um, when I was younger, I read him and I really enjoyed Mort. I think that was my favourite one when I was a kid. And then I just stopped reading him. And I don't think I've read anything of his in about 15 years. So this was pretty interesting to go back to. So what was it like going back to? Um, Interesting. Uh, (laughs) My likes have changed so much. I've become more of a literary snob, I think. So going back to this, I don't know, I just it just didn't hit the same way. And I just kept thinking I'd rather be reading like something that I find personally more engaging. But I did enjoy being like in Ankh-Morpor again. That was fun. Okay. I have to say I'm shocked because I've gone back to it and I'm just like, I love it. I love it. I'm so glad to be back. <laughs> I'm, I'm really, really sorry for you that you've moved on from Pratchett. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I wonder, Jared, have you moved on from Pratchett or have you moved on from fantasy? Yeah, that's a good point, actually. I think in general, I don't read as much fantasy anymore i'll read things with fantastical elements um such as the last book that we read for the book club lincoln and the bardo or i read um, marlon james's black leopard red wolf but generally speaking yeah i don't read anywhere near as much as i used to read because sarah i know you're not a huge uh fantasy fan how, how did pratchett strike you yeah, that's putting it mildly. I mean, I am going to echo both Stuart and Gerard in that I was very grateful to Jeff that I was made to read this book, emphasis on the made for the book club, because I feel like Pratchett is such a British cultural institution that someone would have taken my citizenship away if I hadn't gotten around to reading one. And how can I call myself a book lover? 
And I did find it a really sort of entertaining, pleasant read. But here is the thing with fantasy for me, and this is where I'm going to echo Gerard. It always reads like YA. This book did read to me as if I would have loved it when I was 17, like Saima, but it just doesn't age. It wouldn't sort of grow up with the audience. And I thought it was you know, sort of very straightforward, slightly on the nose. Two things I will say. It's a towering achievement to build an entire novel around male. And (laughs) you do get the sense coming through. It sort of beams off the pages that Pratchett was this guy with a kind of fundamental decency and interest in the world and goodness. And and I loved that. I thought, you know, it was was a sort of pleasant, pleasurable read for that reason. Uh, What about you, Stuart? Was it just pleasure for you? Or do you think um, Terry Pratchett had some serious points to make in this book? I think he definitely did have some serious points. As it was so new to me, I don't think I probably discovered half the points he was trying to make just because I was enjoying the stories. And for me, it was all about the characters, Mr. Grote and Stanley. And I thought it was interesting how Pratchett could create a real sense of character in just a couple of sentences. Like when Stanley's gone on and on about his pens and you know exactly who this guy is. <laughs> Gerard said about how he was maybe a bit snobby about fantasy. Now, I think I've gone the other way. For me... I was much snobbier about fantasy when I was younger. To me, I thought to be a Terry Pratchett reader, you had to have at least one fleece with a wolf's head on it. (laughs) And (laughs) that wasn't me. But, uh, Jeff, you have a fleece with a wolf's head on it? Yes, yes, yes. I thought thought you might. I've also got a map of Ankh-Morpork on my bedroom wall. (laughs) I have a map, it's just not on my bedroom wall. (laughs) But I'm actually really fascinated by the fact that everybody's talking about fantasy. And I know Discworld is sort of fantasy, but it goes back to that moral compass that Rob talks about. It really is the real world, just sort of dressed up slightly and Pratchett's just using it to make his points. And I think with this one, you kind of see that angst in terms of what's happening to us in the computer age. It's, It's sort of like being played out through this. And also, I'm really fascinated by this YA thing because I'm, I'm always really interested in the fact, I think when I was growing up, because obviously I'm really ancient, that, you know, YA wasn't such a big thing. It was just sort of coming in. So you just went from the kids section to the adult section and 17, 49, still loving it. So I'm obviously not snobby enough. I yeah. need to be far more snobbish. <laughs> and Jared, were you not at least entertained? Because it seems like Terry Pratchett is very good at sort of, you know, constantly introducing new characters and kind of, you know, driving the story on. Yeah, I thought it was all right. I think when we're talking about kind of British cultural staples, I see it up there with like Monty Python and stuff. And I never really liked Monty Python. So it was just one of those (laughs) things where, yeah, it was entertaining and I can acknowledge that, but it's just not like I'm reading it like I just don't care. I just really don't care. And then when they, um, to agree with Stuart a little bit as well, I started caring towards the middle when I started settling in and just accepting that this is a book about post. And as soon as I pulled up the ghost it, and then the minute that he started escalating things and it became a big political thing and I was just like, ah, oh, I just, I fully got into the post side of it and I wanted to know more about that rather than this big political wider point that he had to make. I didn't care about that at all. And Jeff, does this book not make you feel guilty about selling phones? thanks for that one graham no no not at all it's all your fault jeff it's all your fault it's all my fault (laughs) 
It's all my fault. Um, let's get to scores on the doors. Uh, this is the part of the show where we find out how likely you are to recommend to a friend out of ten. We'll kick off with you, Stuart. How likely are you to recommend this book? I would definitely recommend it, but I don't know who I would recommend it to because it feels like everybody <laughs> in the world has already read Terry Pratchett and I'm really late to the party. But I think I would recommend it to people like me who thought this Terry Pratchett wasn't for them. I would say go ahead and read it. I was going to score it an eight, but I'm actually going to bump it up to a nine based on the audio version. I thought the narration of that was absolutely spot on and Bill Nye popping up to give the footnotes was just a touch of genius. So, yeah, a nine from me. A nine. Very strong. Uh, let's go to Jared next. Oh, <laughs> so I think for me, it was one of those things where I just don't feel strongly enough about the book to ever recommend it to somebody. So like as an author, I'd give Terry Pratchett like an eight, nine. I think everyone should read at least one Terry Pratchett novel. But as a book, I'd probably give it like a two, three. Fair enough. Uh, let's check in with uh, Saima. What score are you giving it? Terry Pratchett as an author, I would give an 11 too. I think everybody should read Pratchett. I think in terms of the entire Discworld series, this one's not my favourite. So I'd give it a nine, but it's just because I have one style. <laughs> this one isn't my favourite. I was thinking five, six, no, a nine. Okay. Still a Pratchett. And uh, finally, uh, Jeff, what's, what's your score? I used to be a school librarian. So basically, everybody who walked into that library got recommended a Terry Pratchett book. Ten. Absolutely ten. Ten high scores indeed for Going Postal by Terry Pratchett. Uh, time to find out what we are reading next time. And I believe it's the turn of Simon to choose. Absolutely. So the next one is Best of Friends by Kamala Shamsi. And I've recommended this because I think Kamala's a really interesting and exciting writer. I've been reading her for quite a while. On the face of it, it's about a friendship, but there's lots and lots of different angles and lots of different manoeuvrings going on behind the scenes. All right, Kamala Shamsi's Best of Friends. We look forward to talking about that next time. In the meantime, thank you all for discussing Terry Pratchett and Going Postal. See you soon. Bye. 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 Time for Talking Books. And here's someone with some rather bad news. A young, plump oracle stood and hurried down from the second tier. It's true, Dr. Kelly. Clearest vision I've ever seen. I was the first to see it after he arrived. Leave looked to Helena, confused. Who, Travis Smythe? The sullied child, Irina rasped, before Helena could answer. That's a fairy tale to scare little witches. The oracle continued unabated. For generations we've beheld the child in our reverie. The symbol recurred hundreds of times in a hundred different forms. A boy child who would bring untold ruination on a scale never before witnessed. You might well recognise the voice of Nicola Coughlin, who first rose to fame as Claire Devlin in the hit comedy Derry Girls and then as Penelope Featherington in the Netflix blockbuster Bridgerton. In between all that, she is a wizard of the audiobook world. In fact, she read the audio version of one of our featured books this series, Juno Dawson's Her Majesty's Royal Coven, which is where that clip was from, a real tour de audiobook force. We wanted to know what it was about doing audiobooks that inspired her, so decided to ask, starting with what it was like when she first got into it. 
it's funny because I, in the beginning of doing audiobooks, I didn't really know what I was doing. And it's a very unusual process in that it's just you and a sound engineer. There's no director. The writer might pop in at some point during the process, but it's very much up to you what you're going to do with it. So it's a good experience in like just testing yourself and seeing what you can do and you can't really have because there's times on set because there's so much waiting around for self-doubt to creep in or go oh what am I doing with this character but when you're playing every single character there's not really much room for that you just sort of have to go with it and hope for the best but also that must be the joy that you get to play all these characters that you will never get to play it's so much fun and like it's really funny because one of the first audiobooks I listened to was a Bridgerton audiobook actually because when I got the role I knew little to nothing about the world of Bridgerton and it made me giggle because you know people have to do the sex scenes you know with with themselves so that (laughs) and then but then I had to do it in (laughs) HMRC so I was like well that serves me right for laughing at it and when you started doing it were you known because of Derry Girls were you being approached "Oh, oh we want Nicola Coughlin because some of the books you start with, like The Temple Has Vanishing or Big Girl, Small Town, mm-hmm. I mean, they seem very much in your wheelhouse. You kind of think, oh, yeah, Nicola Cockle will do that. She'll be really good at that. For so sure. is, that how, is, is that how that happened? Yeah, those ones were, were through my agent. And I, I really loved Big Girl, Small Town. It's such it's such a good story. And it's a, it's a really self-contained story. Very different for HMRC in that way, because HMRC spans a whole world. But there's something then, conversely, that's so fascinating about that story, because it's about this girl that works in a local chipper in her very small life and what's happening but again Michelle Gallen who wrote that like a really distinct voice I always like when you feel like it really comes from a place of experience and even though witchcraft doesn't Juno still imbues all the characters with such personality and relatability and one of the things that's so impressive in Her Majesty's Royal Coven is the accents and your your command of the accents was that a, a leap in the dark or did you kind of think hold my beer wait till you hear this like did you did you know you were good <laughs> I mean, I guess it's a mix. It's funny because I looked up, I found my notes from when I did it and it starts very basically, Neve, Irish, Kira, Deep. Yeah, some of them are just American or Essex. And then I've like written down, I always like a circle when I've done like 10 pages because you, I mean, these are hefty books. Yeah. They're thick. You're, you're recording for like four days. But some of them, like I'll put an actor to them because I am quite visual and obviously audiobooks are not that at all. So Dabney Hale, I somehow imagine a little bit like Jude Law. And then we have Leone. I've have I've just written down Scary Spice. <laughs> it, it, just things like that really help because sometimes you'll, because there's so many characters in these books, those kind of things help me. But it's both terrifying and liberating because you make the choice, but then you're going back and you're like, what accent did I do? And, and indeed from doing the first book to the sequel, and going, what did I do? <laughs> like, yeah. I can't remember what this was, you know. Are you getting offered lots of these things now, now that it's out in the world that Nicola Cochran is very good at audio <laughs> books? Well, it's funny because I think because audiobooks are one of the most knackering things to do. And it sounds silly because you say to people, people go, well, it's just talking. And I think, yeah, but you're sort of trying to create the whole world and trying to create many distinct characters and remember them and it takes such an amount of energy that I finish a day doing an audiobook and I'm shattered even I'm I'm, I'm doing one this week and I'm like I'm my friends are like we'll go for dinner after I'm like I can't I can't because I can't talk also like it's just not normal to sit from 10 to 5 and just speak constantly 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 so but I I now am, I'm much more selective about them unless I really connect with the text or connect with the book. But also I feel like you're doing it a disservice if it's something that you're not like, oh, this is really great. You know, for the listener, you're not going to give them your best. 
And when you do it, are you kind of self-directing or mm-hmm. is there a producer? Does someone give you notes or is it just, no, I know what I'm doing, leave me alone? It's pretty much just you, which is, you know, it can be a very liberating experience because, you know, sometimes like on set, you'll shoot a scene upwards of 10 to 15 times. And on Bridgerton, they have, you know, it's such a, a huge scale of a show that you can do 20 takes of a scene every scene. So to go in and go, I have one run at this and I'm just going to do it and do what I want to do. It's very fun. It flexes a totally different muscle of performance. So I love that side of it. Hey, let's talk about uh, things you read without a microphone. Is there a book that kind of turned you on to reading? Do you remember what it was? There's one book I remember reading repeatedly as a child. I'll almost have to Google who who wrote it because it's not like a very well-known book, but it was called My Best Fiend. And it was about just two girls and their friendship. And one of them, I remember it was since she had cornflower blue eyes and her hair was like sunshine. And then her, her other friend had like short mousy hair. And it was just, I think as a little girl, I just, I relate to this completely. I was the mousy one, not the one with the cornflower blue eyes. <laughs> <laughs> um, tell me, uh, Nicola, is there a book that you turn to uh, for comfort? Is there kind of a comfort read in your life? I love uh, the author Simon Rich. So he's written a bunch of books, Spoiled Brats is one, and there he was a humorist. He wrote, he worked on SNL, I believe, but I quite like absurdist humorist because I, I, just that kind of stuff just really tickles me. And I think there's also license in books to sort of go weirder directions that you wouldn't be allowed to go to on screen, let's say, that you can just, you, you really see someone's unfiltered imagination that's something I really love about his books and the final one is a book that you give people or you recommend to a lot of people I've recommended this to so many people they must be truly sick of me doing it but uh, I'm a big fan of John Ronson's books I love reading nonfiction, yeah. and uh, The Psychopath Test I always tell people to read because it's fun to give to people because it's so fun to have the conversation afterwards you know, he goes into psychopathy. And the thing I love about, I've read a lot of his books, but he starts off in one place and takes you on such a mad journey. And just, yeah, he explores human nature in such a clever, humorous way. I'm really drawn to humour in in writing. So yeah, his books are always fun to recommend to people. Interesting that as an actor, I would imagine you prefer fiction, but you, you like nonfiction. It's a funny one. I think because I sometimes film for such long periods. Bridgerton is eight months and then I filmed Big Mood for then two months after that and they overlap for a time. So I'm learning such an amount of scripted dialogue daily that it's then sometimes exhausting to me even to watch scripted stuff. So sometimes nonfiction feels like, oh, that side of my brain can totally shut off. And also, you know, being an actor, I think a lot of it is being fascinated by human nature and the extremes of it. Because sometimes you read something in a script and you go, would someone ever do that? And you read nonfiction and go, oh, they really would and worse and more, you know? (laughs) The wonderful Nicola Coughlin on some of her favourite reads and her own audiobook outings. You can also hear Nicola as the lovable and iconic Nancy in a recent audio adaptation of Dickens' classic Oliver Twist, executive produced by Sam Mendes and available on Audible. It is nearly time for us to pack up our mailbags, but wait, I hear a distant thrumming of the wires. Is it? It is. Audiobook insider and chart maven Holly Newson is here, clutching her own sack of messages about what is hot and happening on the charts. Holly, what is causing people to write home? 
Well, Graham, Britney Spears' The Woman in Me, both uh-huh. audiobook and print, are at the top of the biographies chart and the audiobook is topping the Audible chart, which is interesting given that she chose not to narrate it. Um, we are fully into memoir season now and you don't get much bigger than Britney in terms of people waiting for her to tell her own story. She didn't really do much press for this, but that certainly not harmed the intrigue. And it's not stopped the press writing about it either. Um, I'm calling this a big hitter early-ish in its publication life, but it's Britney. How could it be anything else? I mean, it is fascinating that, you know, without narrating it, without doing any press, we hoped she'd be like, come on the podcast, but no. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, people are still interested. So uh, what's our one to watch this time? I want to watch is kind of a slow burn in the charts right now. It's Walk Yourself Happy by TV presenter Julia Bradbury. It's actually doing fairly well in quite a few different charts, holding place on the health, family and lifestyle chart, the biography chart, the mind, body and spirit chart and the sports, hobby and games chart. Um, so a very broad spread there. Uh, the book itself is self-help via nature and walking. And I'm curious to see if it will continue to hold place. The um, high sales numbers with not very many reviews at the moment suggests that people might be buying it for others. So maybe this is one that will get some more reviews after Christmas than then perhaps a nice little bump in sales. Or not. <laughs> it's, it's hard to imagine how a book on walking... I mean, yeah, it is yeah. a bit like, why don't you just go for a walk? Yes. I mean, good luck to you, Julia. <laughs> you filled a book with it. So, uh, yeah, congratulations. And finally. And finally, um, one that is having a second run at the charts. Abroad in Japan by Chris Broad, the audiobook is high on the travel and holiday chart. And it has so many five star reviews pretty unanimously. Um, Chris is a very successful YouTuber. After moving to Japan as an English teacher 10 years ago, he's been documenting his various travel moments and things more generally about life and culture in Japan. And this book looks to do the same. Um, The print book came out in the summer of 2023 and is already a Sunday Times bestseller. But the audiobook was out more recently and is doing really well. So some people were either waiting for that format or they liked it so much they bought it twice. It's fascinating the way kind of bestsellers can come from all sorts of odd angles these days. 100%. I feel like the YouTuber angle, yeah. when they get it right, they really get it right. Well, look, thank you so much, Holly. Uh, don't forget, you can find details of all the books we talk about on our webpage. Just search for the Graham Norton Book Club on Amazon or Audible, and all the information you need will be right there. Our book clubbers have gone off to see if they can create a new universe by balancing a Barry Manilow LP on the back of Jeff's Axolotl. So it just remains for me to thank the queen of this week's Graham Norton Book Club universe, Sarah <laughs> Collins. Thank you so much. Yes, I'll take it. I am the queen and my first <laughs> command is there shall be no more fantasy. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Uh, just to remind you that this series of the Graham Norton Book Club podcast is available on Audible or wherever you get your podcasts. Please give us a follow and leave us a rating and a review if you've a mind. Also, don't forget to join us next time when our book is Kamala Shamsi's Best of Friends and the brilliant Mary Beard will be taking us to Rome. Till then, happy reading and listening, and goodbye. Goodbye.